The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church at Rome. And when he wrote those words, he was contemplating a trip to Rome. And he writes, beginning in verse 14 of Romans chapter 1, I am debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. And as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. Now listen to what he said. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul desperately wanted to preach the gospel in the capital city. When he wrote those words, Christianity did not occupy the place or position in the world that it does now. In the mind of the ordinary Roman, the Jew was almost always regarded with contempt. And then again, when the Christian was distinguished from the Jew, it was only for the Christian to be the subject of even more reproachful terms than the Jew of that day and time was. Some of the most eminent and well-informed of the Roman writers of that era speak of Christianity as a pernicious and detestable superstition. (laughs) Sounds like some of the people in America today. Paul had been subjected to many indignities. And Paul had endured a great deal of suffering so that he could preach the gospel of Christ. His own nation, the Jewish people, had flung him aside. He had been cast out of Antioch of Pisidia. He had been to Lystra and he was stoned while he was in Lystra. At Philippi he was imprisoned and he fled from Thessalonica so that he could avoid his enemies. He had been mocked by the philosophers at Athens, and he had been persecuted at Corinth. At Ephesus, there was a great mob that sought to do him harm. And yet, Paul had not been ashamed of the gospel of Christ at Athens. And Paul was not going to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ at Rome either. It's that gospel, the gospel that told of Jesus Christ crucified, It was a stumbling block to the Jew. It was indeed foolishness to the Greek and to the Roman also. And yet, Paul had gone to the city of Plato and Socrates. And in the city of Plato and Socrates, he had boldly proclaimed the message of the lowly Nazarene. And now he was going and he was going to boldly proclaim the message of Jesus in the city of Cicero and Seneca. He had suffered for the gospel. Oh, he had suffered so much for the gospel. But he's got such great hopes and great anticipation and great expectation as he's going to the capital city to preach of Jesus Christ. Paul's words to those Romans ought to be a source of great inspiration to you and me today. 
in the 21st century in America. The same reasons that caused Paul to feel the way he did. The same things that caused Paul not to be ashamed of the Gospel ought to be an inspiration to us and should have the same effect on us. Because you see, the Gospel of Christ, it is indeed God's power to save. You remember the immortal words of Catherine Hankey? I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and His love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I can stand here in front of you this morning and I can say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of the Christ whom the gospel proclaims. I believe with every fiber of my being that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of the God who created this universe. And that's not, quite honestly, a popular idea with some folks in our day and time. It kind of reminds me of a story I came across not long ago. It seems that this young boy had grown up in a little small town, a place not that different from Center, Texas, and he returned home after his first semester at college. And the little home church he had grown up in was an elderly lady who had taught him in Sunday school for several years. And she invited him over for a meal one night while he was there. He hadn't been at college long, only a semester. But he'd been there long enough for those secularly progressive professors there to destroy his faith and sneer him out of faith in God. So as this elderly Christian lady, as she fixed him a meal, he felt the need to inform her. So he told her, he said, you know, I've once believed in God, but now that I've been to the university and now that I've studied science, God is just an empty word to me. And so she paused for a moment and she said, well, I've never studied science, but you have. And she had an egg she was about to put into one of the dishes she was preparing for the meal. And she said, since you've studied science and I haven't, maybe you can tell me where this egg came from. He said, why, from a hen, of course. Okay. And where did the hen come from, she said. Why, it hatched from an egg. And the lady said, well, then perhaps you can tell me which one existed first. 
He said, well, the hen, of course, the hen had to lay the egg. So you mean to tell me, young man, that a hen existed without having come from an egg? Oh, oh, no, 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 said the young man. I, I guess I should have said that the egg was first. And she looked at him and looked puzzled and she said, Then you mean that an egg existed without coming from a hen? And the young boy from the university said, you're, you're just getting me all confused now. And she smiled at him and she said sweetly, she said, young man, since you cannot explain the existence of even an egg without God, do you really expect me to believe you can explain the existence of the whole world without God? And that ended their discussion about whether or not he believed in God. You see, the tragedy is, the existence of God and the existence of Jesus as the Son of God is something that's especially unpopular with the enlightened, elite, and worldly educated folks in our land today. It's certainly not something that our secularly progressive society finds appealing. There are those in high places of our government whose desire is to remove every vestige of God and Jesus Christ from, from our national consciousness. And yet, this is the claim that Jesus made for Himself, that He was the Son of God. It was a claim that was made for him by the writers of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, writing to that much-loved church at <clears throat> Philippi, wrote, it's in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a serpent, a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. I may be just a simple country preacher. But I'm not ashamed to proclaim loudly to the whole world that I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I'm also not ashamed to confess to the whole world that I believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Isaiah told of, foretold of this 400 years before it happened in Isaiah 7 verse 14. He said, Behold, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. A virgin shall bring forth a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. We read of that fulfillment in Matthew chapter 1. Beginning there in verse 18, Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. 
When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was mindful to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream and said, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. But there are a lot of folks today, <clears throat> excuse me, way too many, who consider the idea of the virgin birth of Jesus to be pagan. Crude, a story, a fairy tale, a myth. I want to share with you a the results of some recent polls that were taken among ministers. I did a lot of looking for these, and I found three polls of those who claim to be Christian ministers, pastors, and priests. Now, some of these are a little bit old. But evidently, it's not a subject that people are as interested in polling as they are who the front-runner is on, among the Democrats. And so some of these polls are a little old, but I did search, and these are the most recent I was able to find on this subject. One of them is 20 years old. And it was a poll that was taken of 7,441 ministers in the United States of America. And it showed that depending upon what religious group they were a part of, anywhere from 19% of those ministers up to 60% of the ministers of one religious group did not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. In 1999, there was a poll of 103 ministers in the United Kingdom. They were Roman Catholic priests, Anglican priests, and Protestant ministers. 25% of them, one out of four, did not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. In 2002, there was another poll of 140 ministers of the Church of England. And it found that 27% did not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. One minister from Hampshire was typical of those who did not. Here's what he said. Listen to it. Let it soak in. There was nothing special about Jesus' birth or childhood. It was His adult life that was extraordinary. 
But I have a very traditional bishop. And this is one of those topics I do not go public on because I need to keep the job I've got. 2004. A poll of ministers of the Church of Scotland. 37% did not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. And felt that the virgin birth of Jesus should be something that's interpreted metaphorically. Rather than being the description of an actual event that took place. And we can only assume by the direction of our society that those numbers have grown. Of those who do not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. And so while there are so many who might be ashamed to proclaim loudly that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. I am not one of them. I am not ashamed, nor am I afraid, to say that I believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born of a little virgin Jewish girl named Mary. I also believe that Jesus performed the miracles that are attributed to Him in the New Testament. I believe it all started when He and the apostles were invited to that wedding in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus changed water into wine at that marriage feast. I believe that Jesus made the deaf to hear, the blind to see, and the lame to walk. I believe He stood at the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus walked out, still bound in the grave clothes. I believe He stood in that boat and He stilled the tempest when He said, Peace be still. I believe all of that. I believe it happened just like the Bible says it did. John tells us the purpose of it. John chapter 20, he talks about the signs that Jesus performed. He refers to the miracles as signs in John chapter 20 and verse 30. He says, many other signs. Truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written. Why are they written, John? These are written that you might believe. And believing you might have life through His name. I believe the moral and spiritual teachings of Jesus are without any parallel in all of history. Jesus never wrote a line except what He wrote on the ground when they brought that woman brought to Him in adultery that day. But the words of Jesus have continued. And the words of Jesus have brought more hope, more joy, and more righteousness into this world than all the sayings of all the wise men of all the ages. And the passing of the centuries have confirmed what Jesus taught. Remember what Jesus said Himself in Matthew 24 and verse 35? Heaven and earth may pass away. Jesus said what, Lord? My words shall never pass away. I'm not ashamed of His miracles. I'm not ashamed of His moral and ethical and spiritual teachings. And I'm not ashamed of His example. Because Jesus brought to us a new way of life. He brought to us the way of love. He came and showed us what love looks like. There's an article in the bulletin about that this week, by the way. In Matthew 7 and verse 12, Jesus taught us how to treat each other. He said, whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. What do you mean, Lord? He said, 
You treat other people the way you want other people to treat you. That was the golden rule. In contrast to the rules of iron and brass and silver. And He taught as someone that had authority. As He came to the close of that Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, it tells, Matthew tells us, and when Jesus had ended these sayings, when He ended that sermon, the people were astonished at His doctrine, for He taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of His virgin birth. I'm not ashamed of His miracles. I'm not ashamed of His teachings. I'm not ashamed of His examples. And I'm not ashamed of the Gospel either. There are a lot of folks today, a lot of folks standing in pulpits all over this country today, who regard Jesus as a wonderful teacher, as a wonderful character. And beyond that, Jesus is not really significant in their life. There are a lot of folks that regard Jesus as a great teacher and a wonderful character, but they're even ashamed of the Gospel. And He's made no difference in their life. What is the Gospel? It is literally the good news of Jesus Christ. It's something to be shared with and something to be preached to the whole world. It's a message of the forgiveness of sins through faith in the crucified Jesus. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, by which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. And that He was buried. And that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. That's the Gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of the remedy that the Gospel offers for the sins of the world. Paul, we began this morning by Paul talking about preaching in Rome. In that letter to the Romans in chapter 6, Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not. That as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted in the likeness of His death, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, Paul writes, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and henceforth we should not serve sin. It was that gospel. It was that good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That was what turned the world upside down for Christ as they talk about in Acts chapter 17 and verse 6. And I'm not ashamed of that gospel. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel's hope for the future. If the gospel of Christ, if it represented a losing cause instead of the only cause that's going to conquer 
We'd be well, do well to be ashamed of it. Through the years, history has seen kingdoms rise and fall and vanish forever. But for over 2,000 years, the church has gone on from age to age. Because we know that the gospel has in it the invincible power of the God of heaven. And it gives hope for us as individuals. That's why as Paul neared the end of his life and he wrote that last letter to young Timothy, he said, I'm not ashamed. This is in verse 12 of 2 Timothy 1. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And as he brought that letter to a close in chapter 4, he knows that his execution is not far into the future. In chapter 4 and verse 6, he says, I'm now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I've fought a good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that the God, the righteous judge, shall give to me in that day and not to me only, but to all them that love His appearing. When Paul wrote the words of our text in Romans 1, the Gospel was then, the Gospel is now, and the Gospel will be till time is no more. The power of God unto salvation when its terms and conditions of pardon are met. And the gospel will change the life of those who obey it and live God's kind of life. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9, He became the author of eternal salvation. To who? To all that obey. Now here's the question. What effect has the gospel of Christ had and what effect is the gospel of Christ having on your life? What effect does the gospel have and is it having on your attitude toward others? What effect is it having on your commitment to live God's kind of life the way God wants you to live it? Do you need to make changes? This is your opportunity to do it as we stand and while we sing.